before we really had the term social engineer, people used to just say con artist. Because what a con game is, is where you gain someone's trust and then defraud them. Social engineers gain people's trust in order to trick them. Same thing. And one of my favorite con artists was George C. Parker. He made a living off of selling things he didn't own. He lived in New York City in the early 1900s. A lot of immigrants were moving into the city, and he wanted to take advantage of their lack of knowledge about the city. Grant's tomb was built in 1897, which is the final resting place for Ulysses S. Grant. It's right in Manhattan, and it's an extraordinary monument. You can even go inside and look at the casket. It's a popular tourist attraction. George C. Parker saw so many people coming to see Grant's tomb, he wanted to somehow make money off this. And not by selling popcorn or hot dogs or flowers. No, George's idea was to sell Grant's tomb itself, even though he didn't own it. He got to work drafting up fake documents, which showed he was the grandson of Ulysses S. Grant. And then he rented an office to look like a legal place where you could make such a transaction. And then he went around town looking for victims. There's a lot of people walking around in New York City, stopping for shoe shines, grabbing the paper. It's easy to strike up conversations with anyone. George found someone interested in buying Grant's tomb. George forged some documents, which looked like he was the owner. And he told the victim that he could make a lot of money off this place if he would just charge people to come take a look at the casket. And so he made the deal. He sold Grant's tomb to someone, even though he didn't own it. In the following decades, George C. Parker went on to sell dozens of other landmarks in New York City. He sold the rights to plays and operas. He sold Madison Square Garden to someone once. He sold the Metropolitan Museum of Art once and the Statue of Liberty. But my favorite thing that he sold was the Brooklyn Bridge itself. He would tell people that they could set up a toll booth on the Brooklyn Bridge and make a lot of money from all the cars passing by. This was such a great con game that George sometimes sold the Brooklyn Bridge twice a week. And the city would often have to come out and stop victims from erecting toll booths on the bridge. And that's where we get the term. If you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. Support for this show comes from Veronis. Guess how many files the average employee can access on their first day of work? 17 million. And most of them, they never use. Those files are what these ransomware gangs steal and hold hostage because companies will pay to get that back. That's why ransomware is such a threat. The blast radius is huge, 17 million files? There's so much valuable data that's easy to get and they can make money from. Do you wonder what your company's ransomware blast radius is? Veronis does a free cyber resilience assessment and tells you how many important files a compromised user could steal and whether anything would beep if they did, and a whole lot more. They actually do all the work, show you where the data is open to, if anyone is using it, and what you can do to lock it down before attackers get inside. They also can detect behavior that looks like ransomware and stop it automatically. You can even get a break on your cyber insurance. If you want to learn more, visit varonis.com dark. That's spelled V-A-R. O-N-I-S, veronis.com slash dark. Support for this episode comes from Oracle for Startups. I think I have to buy a new phone this week. This one I have is running out of space, and it's just too slow for my modern usage. But I wonder if startup companies have this same problem, where they start out with some cool new technology to run their business, but over time it starts to slow down and their underlying architecture just can't handle big customers, large spikes, or the growth that they hope to have. How does a startup find technology that can grow with them? Well, Oracle has this startup partnership. It's cleverly called Oracle for Startups. The idea is even though you're a startup, you can tap into the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. 
you get free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you build this any way you want. Now you aren't frustrated and you've got the power to scale and you're free to go after your dream customers. Don't stay stuck. Go check out oracle.com slash go to slash darknet. Can we start out with who you are and what do you do? Sure. Uh, it's kind of a loaded question. So <laughs> Chris Hadnagy, and uh, primarily I'm the CEO, or my fun title is Chief Human Hacker of Social Engineer LLC. Uh, but I also run uh, social-engineer.org, which is a free resource for social engineers or people interested in the topic where they can uh, educate themselves and learn about things like stories and, and the science behind it. And then I also run a nonprofit called the Innocent Lives Foundation. Um, how did you get into social engineering? Oh, that's fun. So I was working in the industry, but doing um, vulnerability assessments. So um, I want to say like maybe many of us started off that way, but I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, back in the day, just kind of doing what I would say very light security and understanding light security and then doing vuln assessments. And then I took a course uh, called pen testing with Backtrack at the time before it was Cali. And um, and got addicted to to pen testing, um, and ended up spending way more time than was healthy inside their labs, and uh, cracked a, a server that hadn't been cracked at the time, and got a job offer from Offsec to work with them as their ops manager, and uh, through that process of working with them and and learning about uh, real pen testing and how to do it, uh, I found that my natural niche uh, in the field was people talking to people and learning how to, to influence them. So I uh, started to write a framework on social engineering. That's what the social-engineer.org site is basically based on, is that framework. And when that framework came out, um, I got a book offer to write my first book, which no one should read. And from there, my company was started. And now we're here 11 years later. <laughs> Over a decade ago, Chris set up the website social-engineer.org. And there he started writing a framework to do social engineering, which is a guide, if you will, on how to do it. He wrote a code of ethics, he defined a bunch of terms, and he outlines many of the different methods and attacks. And it came about because I wanted to understand social engineering from like a scientific and an artistic level. And uh, the way I went about it was kind of looked at my bookshelf and said, man, I read this book because I wanted to understand X, you know, so like, let's say influence. So I, I wanted to understand influence. So I bought Robert Cialdini's book and I read it. And I studied it, and then I took principles from that and tried them on a phishing email or tried them when we were breaking into a building. So I would write that down. And I went through my bookshelf and just kind of outlined, these are the skills I used, these are the places I learned them, and here's how what I took away from those lessons. And through that, it took about nine or ten months, that formulated the social engineering framework that is still alive on the, on the site today. It's been updated, of course, since that time. But took about a year to do, and it came out right around 2009. Yeah, so Chris here, the chief human hacker, has literally written the book on social engineering. Actually, three of them at this point. But back in 2010, on top of the framework he was writing, he was also writing newsletters on social engineering and putting out a podcast about it. And then uh, companies start calling because they're reading this, they see it. They're it's, Again, it's the first time anyone's ever defined it. And... They're saying, hey, would you come and test our, our company? Would you come and, and you know pen test us? Or would you come and fish us and tell us how we did? And I was like, yeah, sure, we would try that. And, and again, at the time, this time in, in history, there was no companies doing this. So it was hard. Like, what, what do we charge them? How do we make a business out of this? You know, We were trying to figure it out all as we went. Um, and that's what started my company at that time, which was about 2010, 11 time. Um, is when I start when I f separated and formed my own company focused strictly on, on, uh, on social engineering. So you're aware of what a phishing email is, right? An email designed to get you to click a link in there, which will harm you somehow, whether it will get you to download malware or scam you or whatever. And when Chris gets a call to do a phishing campaign against a company, he gives them two options. You have the security awareness phishing, and then you have pen test phishing, right? So security awareness phishing. The goal is education at the end. So those are usually done company-wide, like everybody, no matter if there's a 1,000 people or 100,000 people. They're done every month. 
Um, and the goal is to get them to click a link that then brings them to an educational page. Because our end, our end goal with that kind of phishing is to teach them how to catch it and how to report it properly. Uh, but in pen test phishing, the goal is much different. Uh, pen test phishing, our goal is to steal credentials, to um, and, uh, install an implant, uh, to get a Trojan or malware on the machine, somehow to compromise the network or the people for, for the pen test that we're doing. Now, I've worked with, I don't know, hundreds of clients as a security engineer myself. And boy, let me tell you, none of them were interested in me doing phishing attacks on their employees. In fact, my own company that I was working for wouldn't even let me do phishing tests on our own employees. So it's just rare for companies today to try to fish their employees. But it was extra rare to see companies doing this in 2010. I got called by a really large financial institution and they said, we've been doing SE internally for a while and we use your framework now. Would you be willing to work with us and actually testing our people? And for me, it was a shock because like you, I had the same experience. We would do a pen test for a client and I would say to them, hey, can we send some phishing emails? And they're like, nah, we don't really care about that. And I would offer them for free. I would say, let me send five for free. If you like what you see, we could talk about more you know, uh, on pay. And then they would be like, okay, yeah, you can send a few. And they would always work. And they would be like, no, nah, I don't want to pay for them. They just work too good. And it's like, but that's why we should do it. you know? So you were right. I was hitting this roadblock where companies didn't want to do it. But then this large financial institution says, let's do this. And all of a sudden, we are full bore doing SE testing and phishing and all this other work in a major company uh, that's global. And that word spread. And soon as that happened, we other companies started saying, well, if you're working with them, maybe we should consider that. And that is when we were sitting back saying, okay, I don't even know how the heck do we charge for this stuff? What do you come up with? pricing how do you figure out what a service should look like since there was no there was no go to glass door and figure out what a typical social engineer makes you know it was uh just figuring it out as we went and then you're right it still was a struggle first five years i don't I, it was like pulling teeth you would approach companies and they'd be like why do i need this and it was a lot of education and then as media started picking up stories of phishing attacks and vishing attacks and uh social engineering impersonation attacks um, as media covered those more and more, it got to the point where people, companies, you know, C-levels were hearing these stories and going, wow, this is a problem. And that's when it became easier to now sell those services like it is today, where most companies know they need social engineering services. But, um, you know, of course, as it wasn't before, there's a lot more competition. So it's like every other industry. Now they have to pick and choose who they deal with. So Chris sometimes gets calls to send everyone in the company phishing emails. And the goal is to give the employees education and awareness of this kind of attack. So for us, it's um, we, we, we levelize what I call levelize the fish. So we have like three different tiers. So let's say it's the same fish. Like right now, uh, one of the big things that's going around in the real world is since everyone's working from home, it's a new work at home policies, right? So if you're working from home, here's some policies you need to read. Uh, so a fish like that, let's say with a really basic levelized number one, it might only um, it might look like it's just coming randomly to you. It's not personalized. It's not branded. You know, it's just, and it has even some spelling and grammar errors. Uh, level two might come to you, and, and it it's not personalized, but it's there's no errors in it. It looks a little more realistic. And then a level three looks like it's coming from your HR department. Um, and all of these are are geared to teach the employee two things. One is can they catch the fish? So we're recording a lot of data. Um, did they report it properly if they caught it? And if not, when they clicked it, did they go to the landing page that was given to them and read the, the information, which uh, in security awareness, a lot of people love to push like 10, 15, 20 minute CBTs. CBTs are computer-based training, like your typical security awareness training you might get at a company. And uh, th those aren't great. I mean, those are those have a use and a purpose, but they're not great for what we're you know, what we're talking about here, you want to give someone some information they can digest in 60 to 90 seconds. So it should be a, hey, you just clicked on a fish. Here's how you could have caught it. And please report it to this address. And um, and we find that that kind of security awareness phishing program helps keep the idea of phishing in people's minds. And they're more much more aware about all fish throughout the month. And this kind of training works amazingly well. 
It really sticks with the employees who did click the link and got fished. That 60 seconds where they learned that they clicked on a malicious link is a powerful moment. Their online awareness and digital hygiene are instantly leveled up. When we've had clients that use a levelized approach that do it consistently, so these are the things, right? You have to have a levelized approach, do it consistently, um, and and um, and have messaging that isn't damaging. Now, what do I mean by that, right? Everyone's afraid of COVID-19 right now. So if we start fishing people with, like, let's say a, a fish that says, uh, find out who in the office was um, diagnosed with COVID-19, everyone's going to click that. And when they find out it's a test, they're going to feel hurt, especially if someone lost a family member. Uh, let's say someone had a family member die because of the virus. Uh, and now they find out you use that virus as part of education. They're going to feel really hurt and you've taken away the ability to educate them. So your program has to be levelized, consistent, regular, and also it has to not step over that moral line. And when you do that, we've um, probably the, the, you know, the, the case I love to use the most is uh, we fished a, a client we had with uh, for five years. And after three years of consistently fishing them, they had a 78% reduction in actual malware on their network. So actual malware-related cases on their network reduced by 78% because people were catching fish and reporting them properly without clicking them. So that, that that's a huge um, win when you think about doing it right. Pretty impressive, huh? Conducting phishing campaigns on everyone in the company as part of your security awareness training seems like a no-brainer in terms of how it helps improve the security of a company because a ton of malware enters the company by people clicking phishing emails. It's crazy these are still effective today, even though most people know about phishing attacks and have been told over and over not to click on suspicious links. And you know what I've seen some companies do? Where I used to work, they used to give a bonus to employees who could demonstrate healthy behaviors. Like if you didn't smoke and you went to the doctor for preventative care and did regular exercise, they would incentivize you and give you an extra $500 a year as a health bonus. But some companies take this a step further and incentivize people demonstrating proper security hygiene. Like if you're tested with phishing emails every month and pass and then have implemented two-factor authentication properly, and then you use a password manager and you're virus-free for a year, you might get a digital health bonus too. Because some companies can really save money by incentivizing their employees to be more vigilant and secure, which results in less infections company-wide. Because the overall benefit to security outweighs the cost. But enough about security awareness training. I want to hear a story about when Chris had to do a penetration test on a client. So I had just hired Ryan. He's my COO now. And him and I were just working together. This was literally our one of our first jobs together uh, going back a couple years now. And um, we were hired to go break into a couple banks in the country of Jamaica. And this is an interesting one because it's it's my first time breaking into banks in a foreign country. Um, we didn't know what to expect, you know, in, in doing the job. Like, is like what was when we arrive, were they going to be armed? Were they not going to be armed? Like how hostile would they be? Their task was to get into the bank in the middle of the day. Really, this was to see if they could get past security and into the inner areas of the bank. Because this bank wasn't really where customers come in typically. So two foreigners just walking in off the street with no business being in there, should not be able to get in this building. Security should stop them at the front door. But if they get in, the doors to every secure area in the building should be locked. So we our, one of our jobs was that we had to put a USB key into random computers and, um, and, and hack the network. So we had to have like different pieces of software and malware on the USB keys that would allow us to um, to show them that we could have, you know, we weren't allowed to steal anything or get into sensitive parts of the bank. But if we were to gain access to the network, they wanted us to prove that we would have been able to destroy them if, you know, if we gained access to that parts. So that they wanted us to have software and tools with us that can prove those parts uh, while recording also so we can show them what, what it is that we were doing. On top of that, they were told to report any security issues they found along the way. So the objective is set. Time to get to work. So we had done a lot of OSINT and we found that the bank was undergoing an audit from an American company. Okay, OSINT is open source intelligence gathering, which is where you look in public areas online for private information about a company. Chris didn't say how he did it, but here's how I would start. 
First, go to the company's LinkedIn profile. This typically lists a bunch of employees who work for that company. From there, you might see employees posting stuff right on LinkedIn, like, it's audit time again, can you believe it? But if no clues like that show up, you can take this a step further. You take the names of the employees that are on LinkedIn and then try to find their Facebook profiles to see what they're posting there and look through all that. And if nothing is there, then take it another step further. Try to take that name and see if you can find their Reddit profile or their Stack Overflow name or some Twitter name or something else that you can go and scour those posts then. And you keep pivoting around and eventually you'll find someone somewhere posting something that they shouldn't be posting. In this case, Chris found people posting information about a network audit being conducted by an American company on this Jamaican bank. Specifically, it was a PCI audit, which stands for Payment Card Industry. Basically, if any business wants to process credit cards, they need to pass a yearly PCI audit. Since Chris and Ryan are both from the U.S. and understands the ins and outs of PCI, this would be a perfect cover or pretext. They were going to pretend to be PCI auditors to try to get access to the building. So we had printed business cards and and, uh, button-up shirts with that company's name on it, grabbed some clipboards, and uh, we arrive in Jamaica, and we drive to the location to scope it out first day. So it's a pretty big building. It was uh, maybe um, three or four stories high. Um, huge square. The whole f- um, parking lot is uh, surrounded by a fence that has barbed wire pointing in. Uh, there is a guard. As you pull into the um, uh, to the parking lot, there's a, a guard booth uh, with two guards sitting in it at the edge of the parking lot. They drive up to the guard gate, prepared to lie their way in somehow. So because it was daytime and it was, um, and it, you know, they were expecting customers in and out, we weren't stopped at the gate. Um, I mean, we, we, we were stopped, but they were, we just said, oh, yeah, we're here to, uh, to, to do some banking, and they let us right in. There was no issues. And as they enter the parking lot, they see some guys whiz by on dirt bikes. Not only were they on dirt bikes, but as they drove by, Chris and Ryan saw that mounted on the side of the dirt bikes were sawed-off shotguns. There, there was security. They were bank security. And we're like... That's like, you know, in America, bank security is a security guard. Maybe he's a gun on his belt, but he's sitting at the at the desk or, at, you know, up front. These guys were on dirt bikes, like driving through the parking lot. It was just crazy. We were like, what? Ryan and I pulled up. Uh, the, the first thing, we both looked at each other and we, we both had this immediate thought, like, are we still going to do this job? And, and you know, Ryan, he, he like says it. He goes, I, I didn't sign up for this. And I'm like, well... We just flew all the way here from America to Jamaica. Like, it'd be real shame to just come all this way and not even try. And he's like, they have shotguns on dirt bikes. And I'm like, yeah, it's a little odd. But, you know, a gun's a gun, and we break it into armed facilities in America. And those facilities, we, you know, we have a risk of getting shot, too. Yeah, maybe they're not on dirt bikes running around the parking lot. But still, you know, getting shot with a shotgun or a rifle or, uh, you know, an AR is is no different. It's all going to suck, and we're going to get shot. So... And we do those jobs. That was really poor reasoning, but that was my reasoning. <laughs> and, you know, like, you know, see, and, he, and he went along with it and we did it. But, you know, it's uh, looking back, I'm like, whew, boy, that was a scary, scary moment. They took a deep breath, drove through the parking lot and parked. The dirt bikes were whizzing by and they were just adding a whole new level of stress that they weren't expecting. They got out of the van and suited up. They put on a shirt with the company's name that was conducting the audit they got their fake business cards ready. And of course, my favorite. And the clipboard. And the clipboard's hollow. So inside the clipboard are, you know, USB keys and other tools that we may need, lock picks, a camera that we can videotape things with. So there's, a, you know, inside the clipboard are a lot of different things that we can carry. So I don't have to have them all in our hands when we're walking in. They take a look at this building. The building is mirrored glass. So as you're approaching it, you can't see through the windows because uh, all, the, all the glass is mirrored. They got a little information about what's inside this building before coming in. So they know what it looks like inside before they even get in. As you open the front doors, there's a security guard desk right there with a, um, uh, like with a metal detector. And uh, the security guards are sitting behind a desk, but you have to walk through the front doors right past them to get to the staircase. Uh, That is the only access into the building. So there's no other, no other access into that particular building in that area. You can go around the back 
there were some loading docks and other areas, but uh, the front door was the was the only access and through the security guards to, to get to the rest of the bank. So they walk up to the building. And as we're getting closer to the door, I said to Ryan, look, I'm just going to get on my phone, act like I'm having a conversation. And when we get inside, I'm going to say something like, hey, we're coming upstairs now. Just wait. We'll, we'll finish the audit in a minute and we'll just walk past security like we belong. And he's like, uh, is that going to work? I'm like, well, let's find out. And I open the front door, walk in. I pick up my phone, put it to my ear. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, Jack, we're, we're in the front. We're coming upstairs. And we walk right past security and they don't even stop us. I mean, not even flinch. And, you know, you don't have time to pause and be like, what the heck? But as we're walking up the stairs, we're both like, what the heck? You know, like, like that was way too easy. So we get upstairs and we realize we don't have time to stop and breathe and figure out where we go. Uh, I round the corner and there's a room that says ATM testing center. Big sign on it says ATM testing center. And there's a woman who's walking right in front of us and she enters the room. So I just make a quick right and I enter the room right behind her. And Ryan follows right along. So we get in the room and she kind of startled. She turns around and she looks at me like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, we're here doing the, uh, the audit for PCI. We're finishing it up. And she's like, oh, okay. And she just turns around and lets us in this room. They made it in. They look around this room. It seems to be where they repair ATMs, big machines, which may or may not have cash in them, but they're all opened up in pieces around the room. Now, Ryan is like literally climbing up inside giant ATMs, taking pictures of all their circuit boards and parts. And there's a guy over with a computer testing out this ATM. So I walk up to him and I say, explain to me what you're doing. And he walks me through how they code their ATMs. He shows me their software. He's basically giving me a free education on ATMs. And I'm videotaping the whole thing. And he doesn't know I'm covertly videotaping it. So we were in that room for probably about 30 minutes to the point where we're like, we have to leave. Otherwise, it's going to look really awkward, you know, that we just keep hanging out here talking to these people. So we tell them, okay, we're done. We we exit. Now, remember, they are in Jamaica, so they look out of place here. But they had a ruse. Like, we're the only two white guys in literally this whole building. Uh, it, was, it, it was definitely um, culturally interesting there uh, because we definitely stood out. So that's why we chose that we were working for an American audit company. Um, that made that made sense of why we were there, that we weren't trying to be locals. We didn't try to make believe we lived there. We didn't try to make believe anything that, that would throw them off. We were like, yep, yeah, we just came in, flew in from America last night because we're finishing the audit. So they wander the halls with a clipboard in hand, looking for something else of interest. And there's a long hallway. And at the end of the hallway, there's these two glass doors that we could see through. And there's a there's a call center. I can see all these men and women sitting on on phones and headsets, all these rows of computers. And I'm like, okay, that's a call center. And there's a uh, RFID um, pad right next to the door. So we you know we assume okay the door's locked. Uh, we can't go just yanking on it. So we I'm walking really slow towards the door and the hopes that someone would either enter or exit, and I'd be able to hold the door for them or catch the door with my foot and get in without having to have a key. And it's like, you can't even plan this as, as smoothly. It's like, as I approach the door, this woman's exiting. And I go, oh, let me hold that for you. And I just, I pulled the door. She unlocks it. And I hold it for her. And she says a really nice thank you. And Ryan and I walk into the test center. They get in this large office room. Rows and rows of desks and cubicles are here. Lots of people all over with headsets on, talking to customers on the phone. We're trying to find like a quiet, open spot. And we're up, walking up and down these aisles kind of slowly, and I go down this one aisle, and there's a, a computer that's on, but it's at its, its lock screen, and there's a woman sitting right next to it on her computer. So I just say to her, hey, I need you to uh, put your password in this computer here. And she looks, she stops and looks at me, and she's like, what? What do you mean? And I said, I need you to log into this computer. She's like, but I'm using this one. I'm like, yes, I know, but I need you to log into this computer too. And she goes, okay. And she just gets up, and as she's typing her password, I start recording on my phone, and I hold my phone over the keyboard, so I'm recording her password on my on my phone. Does she see you do this? She doesn't. So I, I'm doing it where I'm holding my phone on the back of a clipboard, and I make a big stink about looking away from her so she thinks I'm not watching her put her password in, but I'm recording it on my phone. Um, I call Ryan over. He sits down. He pulls out one of the USB keys, and he starts hacking the, 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 the network from there. 
while Ryan's doing that, I just turn around and I notice that there's this guy, this guy sitting at a desk right behind us about five or six feet. And he gets up to use the bathroom. I assume he just gets up from his desk and he walks away. And when he walks away, he leaves his computer unlocked. He leaves his badge on the desk. He leaves everything there. So I go over to his computer and sit down and just start scrolling through uh, banking screens, applications. I take I take a picture of his badge for cloning later. Um, and then Ryan comes over and he starts hacking that computer. So we, we now are on these two machines and we're like, okay, we've been in the ATM testing center. We hacked the network. We've run two different machines. You know, it's time for us to start exiting. Ryan and Chris start packing up and planning their escape out of there. We start thinking of an exit strategy and a woman comes over and she says, what are you doing here? And we're like, oh, we're finishing up the PCI audit. So we're just testing speeds on these computers. And she's like, okay. And she walks away. I'm like, man, that was way too easy. Well, two minutes later, she comes back with a manager and um, manager says, you know, who is your contact here? And I said, oh, you know, I don't I don't have a contact here. And she goes, everyone who's allowed in the bank has a contact. How'd you get in here? I said, well, we're working with that American audit company. I said the name. And she goes, yeah, I know them. They've been here for the last month. And I'm like, right. And we're just finishing up the audit on speed and other things. So I just was told to come do the test. I said, I can give you my American contact. She's like, no, I need your local. She goes, come with me. She begins escorting Chris and Ryan to the security desk at the front door of the building. Now, Chris is already a step ahead. He thought about what he would do if he got caught. Because it's never over when you get caught. This mission has just changed to see if you can escape from being caught. And Chris's plan was pretty brilliant. Back in their van, in the parking lot of this building, is a third guy they brought with them. He's a local in Jamaica that, that works for a pen test company um, that was the, 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 the bank was, was his client. So they had hired us to come down and do the social engineering part. So, um, so I said, look, you sit in the van, you're our local banker guy. So you're, you, you use this name and if they call, you answer as this, right? Pretty clever. Someone with a local accent who can pretend to vouch for them might just be a pretty convincing fake get out of jail free card. So we we get to security and she says, you know, check on these people. And then she she leaves. So I tell the security guy, I'm like, look, you want to talk to the, you know, my contact here at the bank? And he's like, yes. So I call on the phone. Chris uses his own cell phone to call his buddy who's just in the van in the parking lot to pose as someone who works at this company. And I say, hey, I need you to talk to the security guard. So he basically said, uh, the security guard said, so, um, you know, do you know these two people? And we gave them the fake names because we have fake business cards. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, they work for this company, you know, this um, auditing company. He's like, yep, that's what their card says. And he's like, yeah, they're supposed to be there doing a speed and um, an internet connectivity test. And he's like, yep, that's what they were doing. And he's like, okay, that sounds legitimate. And he's like, great, then please let them continue doing their job. And that was it. And then at that point, um, you know, he said, well, you're verified. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to just take a break and then we'll come back. Because we, at, at this point, we didn't know if, if going back in the building was going to get us arrested. And, you know, I don't know about you. Know, I've been arrested a lot of times on jobs in the States. Getting out of that's relatively easy. I did not know how getting arrested in Jamaica was going to be. So we decided to exit the building. We, plus, I mean, we hacked the network. We hacked the ATM stuff. So we were like, yeah, we're pretty much done here. So we exited the building and then went to our next location. All objectives on the first building have been accomplished. In and out, no problem, easy peasy. At least to someone who's as skilled as Chris and Ryan. Time to head over to the second bank building. The next one, though, is where their knock is. This is the network operations center, the room where a bunch of network technicians and engineers are all actively looking for network security incidents within the bank's network to resolve them. Well, Chris and Ryan are about to be two major network security incidents if they can get into the knock. So this should be an interesting match. Inside the banking property, which looked just like the other property, you know, the barbed wire fence, the whole nine yards, there was a smaller building that was surrounded by another barbed wire fence, and that was the knock. And um, we, you know, we ring the bell and the security guard comes out and he says, um, you know, what's your name? I told him what we were doing. And he looks at his list and he's like, you are not on the list. Uh, I'm going to need to call and get approval. So I said, oh man, you know, if, if you can, I said, look, we're, we're two Americans and we're not used to the heat here. It, can we come in and wait in the air conditioning while you make the calls and verify us? 
and he thought about it for like a good five, ten seconds, and he's like, yeah, okay. So he presses the button, unlocks the gate, and we get in. I'm thinking, this is it. We're going to, while he's in his office making calls, we're going to hack the whole knock. We're going to be out. So um, he lets us in to the front. We're sitting by these two computers, which I'm like, Ryan, as soon as he leaves, this is it. And he goes, okay, you guys wait here. I got to go to my office. And we're like, sure, no problem. We won't move. We'll just sit here in the nice AC. Thanks for being so cool. And uh, and he gets up and he puts his head around the corner and he yells something to some guy. I couldn't understand what it was. And a second later, this dude, I swear, he was the biggest man I've ever seen in my life. And I am by no means a small person. This guy made me look look like a, a miniature human. I mean, this guy must have been 6'10", 6'11". And he, he was as wide as a doorway. He had uh, he had a flak jacket on that had knives at different intervals in his flak jacket. He had a, a giant billy stick on his one hip. On his other hip, he had a sawed-off shotgun, and then he had a handgun on on his on the belt on his other side. This guy comes and he stands with his arms folded in the doorway, and I just leaned over to like touch the computer, and he went mm-mm. Just like that. I'm like, no, no, I'm not doing anything, man. Not doing anything. And like Ryan leans over. He's like, I'm not going to try. And I'm like, don't try. Don't try. At this point, Chris makes a decision. This is not going to work. Time to figure out a way to escape. But you don't want to just get up and run while this big guy with weapons is staring at you. But Chris has prepped really well for this and has a plan. That morning, before coming into this building, he compiled a lot of data on this company. He scoured the internet and researched a bunch of employees here and even made some phone calls to talk with some of those people. All this was done that same morning. We went to LinkedIn and we pulled up the employees of this bank and then we st- and then we found uh, ones who listed their phone numbers and we started calling people who were in positions that we thought would be able to say, um, like they would be our contacts if we were legitimate auditors. You know, so calling like the CISO or the CIO. And what we wanted to do was call them, uh, ask them a couple weird questions and nothing about audits. Just be like, oh, hey, is this Joe? And they'd be like, no, this is not Joe, to hear their voice. And we were hoping that if one of them sounded a lot like our Jamaican contact, you know, like we don't like if they were older or if they had a rough voice or whatever, if they sounded similar, that we can have that guy play the part of, of, uh, of the CISO and then give us that fake permission. You get it, right? They were trying to find somebody within the company that sounded like their third guy in the van so that he could pretend to be the person on the phone. And one of the people they tried calling was the chief information officer. But when they called the CIO, they never got through. The uh, the secretary said, oh, he's not in today. He's on a business trip. He flew to another island. And then I just asked, so when, when will he be back? Well, not till later this afternoon. You know, like, okay, great. Then, you know, we'll call back then. Now, he took this little bit of information he learned earlier that day, and he's sitting in the building with a knock, and this huge armed guard is staring at him, and he waits for the other guard to come back. When the guy came back, he's like, look, I can't verify you. No one knows who you are. Uh, I'm a little worried. I said, oh, you know, um, the guy who's supposed to be in contact with us, I heard he's off the island today. He's on a business trip somewhere. And he said, yeah, that's what they told me. And that was the only thing that saved us because I knew a story that he had found out just now on the phone. I said, yeah, well, that guy's our contact. You know what? Why don't we do this? He's supposed to be back in a couple hours. So why don't we go? We have another site that we're supposed to go to. We'll go do that site. And then we'll come back in a couple hours when he's landed from his business trip. And he's like, "Okay, that's cool. And we got the heck out of there and left and never came back. We had no other sites. We were done. So we did nothing there. We didn't hack that. We completely failed on that job. But it was like, this guy could break both of us in half without thinking about it. And failing is actually good. It means their security was better than Chris. And Chris is a professional. So at this point, Chris and Ryan write up a full report and have a meeting with the client to go over everything. Yeah, you know, that's that's what I love about working with clients like that is they were very happy. So they weren't mad. They weren't like, oh, you guys are jerks. They they really loved the story. They loved how far we went. They loved that we also didn't like try to hurt anybody or damage anybody. They, um, you know, they loved that we followed all the rules, but mo- mostly they just loved that we proved where their vulnerabilities were. Because at the end they said, well, what could have stopped you? And, and I gave them like three or five different points of where we could have been stopped at any point in time. Yeah, I, and we I, I'm interested to hear those points. Sure. So the first the first point was when we entered the building on the phone, the security guard didn't stop us, and he should have. 
he should have said, whoa, whoa, hang on, before you get upstairs, like, who are you here to see? And I, sh- and I would have came up with the same fake name, and he would have went, I don't see you on the list. Let me call upstairs and see if Jack is there. And when he called upstairs and there's no Jack, I would have been stopped. That was the first time I could have been stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second time is when I um, entered the ATM center with Ryan, and the lady turned around and went, you know, whoa, what are you doing in here? And I said, PCI audit. She should have said, well, I don't have you authorized in this room. This is a private room and had a whole separate security system. Um, she could have called downstairs to security and say, hey, are there supposed to be auditors doing the ATM center? And that may have triggered them to check in and I could have been stopped there. Yeah, or just um, she could have just shut the door and said. Yeah, you're not allowed in. Um, the third time was when we were in the call center and I said to that woman, put your password in here. She should have said, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. Let me go get my manager, you know, or just rejected entering her password. Um, she didn't do that. The, the fourth time was when we went over to the computer that the guy didn't lock. He could have stopped us by locking his computer before he left for the bathroom, you know, and then the fifth time was back at the security guards when we called a fake you know, Jack and said, hey, yeah, here, talk to our contact here. And he accepted that we were telling the truth and let us, you know, was going to let us back in. Um, that that could have stopped us if he was like, I'm not handling your phone. I want to call this guy directly on the extension I know. And he took my phone, which could have been any person, and spoke to him as a bank contact. He could have he could have just called um, called the extension directly instead of trusting me. So when I told them those five things, they were like, yeah. Those are all good points. And I'm like, and, you know, you set training and you set policies in place and then you train them on those policies and you give them avenues to do this smart. And next time we will not be able to break in. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger podcast. Here's a clip from one of his episodes. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger show, where I speak with the infamous Firefest's Billy McFarland from inside federal prison, where he's serving six years for fraud and on the hook for $26 million in restitution. This call is from William McFarland, an inmate at a federal prison. Is this the new Billy that we're hearing, or are you the same Billy that tried to pull off the Fire Festival? When I think about the mistakes that were made and what happened, there's no way I can just describe it other than what the f*** was I thinking. I was wrong, and I hope now that I can in some small way make a positive impact. Once you knew that the festival wasn't going to go as planned, why didn't you call it off? So a lot of people don't know, but the decision to cancel the festival was made when I was told that three people had died at the event. Thankfully, no one was actually physically hurt in any way. But up until the last second, I believed incorrectly we could pull it off, and obviously I was wrong. We had something called the Urgent Daily Payments Document. Essentially, it was a list of payments that we had to make that day, or else the festival couldn't proceed. In the couple of months leading up to the event, it went from a couple thousand dollars a day to a few million dollars a day, where I had to wake up at 9 in the morning, find $3 million by noon, and then make the payments by 4. You had a big vision. I mean, it was huge. And you got so close to something great that everyone wanted to be a part of, and people still want to be a part of it. I have to wonder if there's going to be a Firefest version two. I assume you wouldn't call it that, but are you thinking of doing something similar? If there's anything that makes you want to create and build and do, it's being locked in a cage for months or years. Are you going to come? For more with Billy McFarland, including lessons learned on the inside and his plans once he's served the time he agrees he rightly deserves, check out episode 422 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. A few years later, Chris and Ryan were back in the United States. They got a job to break into a building and gain remote access to the network inside. The guy who hired Chris and Ryan to try to break in was the head of physical security of the building. So the head of security authorized this, which is what made it legal. And Chris had printed out this authorization letter and put it in his pocket. Because if all goes wrong, they've got this letter which says the head of security paid them to test this facility. They plan out their pretext or ruse. They were going to pose as pest control, which could get them access into the building. And then from there, they could try to sneak a USB drive into one of the computers They had a uniform, spray bottles, boxes, and more to look like they were actually doing pest control. They decided to go the night before to scout out the place. It's a big office building, lots of glass windows, and even a glass door in the front. They came by at night. There was no security around. 
They tugged on the doors, but they were locked. So they decided to try an old trick. Yeah, there was like two glass doors that led into the place, and they had a gap in between them that was wide enough for us to shove a USB key through. Their theory is that if they slip one of their malicious USB sticks through the gap of the door and into the building, when someone finds it the next day, they might be just curious enough to see what's on it and plug it into a computer. Which, by the way, you should never do. USB keys can contain a ton of icky malware that you want to avoid. But if a user opened any of the files that were on this USB drive, it would create a reverse connection back to Chris's server, which would allow him remote access to that computer the user plugged the USB key into. So they shoved this USB stick through the gap of the door. And there was two sets of these doors. And what, uh, sadly, the first door, perfect. We did great. The second door, nobody ever uses it. And we didn't know that. So when we slid the USB key through, um, when someone found it the next morning, they went, hey, you know that door that is like totally never used? There's a USB key on the floor there. And that made security go look at the videotapes from the night before. So they saw Ryan and I at the building outside sliding these keys through the door. So we didn't know that. None of this we knew. So the next day we come and I'm reversing into my parking spot. I'm in this big, huge SUV and I'm reversing into the parking spot. And uh, I had just turned around to make sure I wasn't hitting anything. And I heard the door open. I thought Ryan was getting out. And when I turned back, there's a cop that ripped Ryan out, you know, a, a, a security guard. Uh, but an armed security guard who ripped Ryan out of the front door and had him slammed on the hood and was cuffing him. Now, Ryan knows this. Everyone knows this. Look, if we got to get away, I may run so I can come back and break in later like you're going to have to deal with it. Uh, so I put the car in drive like I'm going to flee. And he's looking at me like shaking his head like, don't leave me, man. And I'm like, see ya, sucker, you know. <laughs> and I'm just about to take my foot off the brake and a woman jumps out in front of the car with her gun drawn. And she's like, get out of the car. And I'm like, hey, hey, put the gun away. We're all good. And I put it in park. And she's like, get out of the car. And I'm like, I'm not getting out of the car until you put the gun away. Like, I need you to put the gun away. And she's like, I'm not putting the gun away. And we're yelling back and forth. And uh, eventually I get out of the car. And she was short. She must have been like 5'2", five, 5'3", five, and I'm 6'3". She slammed me on the hood so hard that it knocked my hat and my sunglasses off and they flew across the hood. Before my face bounced off the hood, she had both my arms in, in cuffs. And it was so impressive. I said, whoa, that was like maybe the quickest cuffing I've ever had. It just came out of my mouth, right? And she goes, you get cuffed all the time, don't you scumbag? And I'm like, okay, I can see you're very angry. Um, I don't know why you're so angry. I mean, we're just driving, you know, pulling in here. We're doing some pest control. And she's like, you're not doing pest control, scum. And then she like takes me up and she, she stands me up. And, and I'm like, hey, it's really hot here. Uh, it was a summertime in a, in a really hot area. Um, I'm like, can we go over to the shade? So she takes us over to the shade. Ryan and I are now kneeling on the ground, like in execution style. You know, we're on our knees, both of us cuffed behind our back. And, um, and they're like, what are you doing here? And Ryan like whispers to me, give her the letter. And I'm like, no, no, we can get out of this, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, we're here doing pest control. And she's like, you're not doing pest control. And I'm like, we are. I said, look, go up in the back of our SUV up. You'll see this. We had we had pest control sprayers and we had fake chemical cartons and everything. We had all the stuff to, to look the deal. So she's like, you know, you're not here doing pest control. I'm like, just open it up and look. So, you know, they see the pest control equipment and she's like, I don't believe you. And I'm like, I don't know why you don't believe me. Look, I got a work order. Here's my clipboards in the car if you want to get it. And she's like, I'm not going anywhere, scum. What are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm telling you, I don't know how many ways to answer it. And then Ryan's like, dude, the letter, they're getting mad. And I'm like, no, we don't need the letter. <laughs> and, uh, and, then she, and then the guy guard comes over and he's like, why were you here 11 o'clock last night? And I'm like, crap. Um, so I'm quickly thinking and I'm like, well... Uh, one of the things we were hired to spray for was scorpions, and they don't come out in the daytime. Uh, they, this, this, this breed of scorpion only comes out at nighttime, so we came at night to just check the area to make sure that we were going to spray at night. And he said, we saw you on video. We didn't see any sprayers. You were just walking around the building looking at our doors. And I'm like, well, we were just scoping it out. We're going to do the spraying now and tonight. And he's like, what are you really doing here? 
And I'm like, no, I'm telling you, that's the truth. And Ryan's like, give him the letter, dang it. And I'm like, no, man, like we could do this. Like I, I'm feeling like we're going to win this, right? And and then he goes, what are what about the USB keys you dropped? And then I'm like, crap, yeah, now it's over. So I'm like, okay, look, man, there's a letter in that clipboard. And he's like, I'm not grabbing your clipboard. For all I know, it's some kind of device. And I'm like, no, no, just grab the letter, please. You can grab the letter. So the lady goes over, she grabs the letter, and they open it. And they see the contact name and they know him personally. And they're like, that mother, I can't believe it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that, he's a real jerk. Yeah, that guy's a jerk. You should uncuff us. We're, we're buddies. And she's like, we're not uncuffing you, scum. And I'm like, no, come on. We're not scum anymore. Now you know we're good guys, right? And she's like, no. You know, so we stayed kneeling there on the ground for like 10 more minutes while, while we waited for our contact to come out, who we found out was in the bushes filming us getting arrested. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So we're like, really, man? And he's like, this was great. These these guys did so good. I'm like, yeah, they did great, but you could have saved us. And he's like, no, this was awesome. I'm like. <laughs> the name on the letter was actually the security guard's boss. And once they called him and he said, yep, this is all a test, the situation calmed down. And the security guards eventually started laughing about this whole situation and started asking Chris and Ryan, like, what are their jobs as pen testers? Everyone started being more friendly. You know, and the whole time I'm grilling them for info. I'm like, so yeah, you know, like you guys did really good. We should have came later, but you're probably here 24 hours, right? And they're like, no, 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 no security here is after 7 p.m. And I'm like, oh yeah, we should have chose them. That's too bad. So I got their their schedules, you know, like from them just by talking. So then we come back that night at like 9 p.m. after they're gone, and we we break into the place and we break into their office, and um, we stole their badges and some of their stuff for for getting into other buildings and then i left all of my pest control equipment on their desks with a with a big thank you note and a couple a couple smiley hearts you know <laughs> and, and uh, the next day when they came in they knew that we had broken in saw the cameras and you know us stealing their stuff but then our, our pest control equipment was on their desk so you know a little little fun humor back and forth okay for this next story Actually, can I just take a moment and say thank you for being here as a listener? I mean, look at this. We're, what, 40 minutes into this episode, and you're still with me? It's unbelievable. Just thanks so much for being here with me right here, right now. Mm. So for you, the listener who's made it this far, I have something I'm really excited to be able to share with you. This is a rare find, and I've been looking for something like this for quite a while. So I was really excited when Chris said he could do it. So the story starts with Chris doing a phishing campaign against a company with the goal of raising security awareness for the company. So in, in this particular test, we, um, we started off with a phishing email and it was uh, out to a thousand people and it was about a brand new iPhone. Uh, so to, to register to win one of the brand new iPhones, uh, all you had to do was go to this website and put in your, your credentials for your computer. It was a corporate sponsored uh, raffle. So that you went to a site that looked like your corporate site, uh, entered the info, and then you were entered to win one of these iPhones. So many of the people in this company wanted a free iPhone. And the email looked like it was sponsored by the company itself. So the employees were like, heck yeah, let me register to win this thing. From this email alone, Chris got 750 people to click the link and then go to his website and enter in their work username and password. Ugh. It's insane. At this point, you could send each of these people an email explaining how the raffle was just a test and they failed. And that could be the end of the security awareness training. But besides raising awareness, Chris had a secondary objective, which was to also gain remote access to the network inside. So he comes up with a plan. Uh, we had their username and password, but our job was to gain access to their, to their uh, network remotely. So the, the, the goal was to call each one of these people and tell them that the, um, the link they just clicked on was a fish and that they had to, you know, hopefully they went and when, when they were notified of that, they had, that was a fish that they had to go change their password and that once they changed their password, um, we had to just make sure that there was no residual uh, malware on the computer from clicking that fish. And to clean their system, we created a PC cleaner 
program for them that would clean their machine from any malware. And of course, it was not a PC cleaner. It was a, a Meterpreter reverse shell uh, that gave us access into their machine. So the goal was to call like 25 people who clicked the link and somehow convince them to run some malware. This is vishing, which is voice phishing. But like I was saying earlier, it's the same thing that con artists have been doing for 100 years. So Chris changed into Paul and acted like he's from tech support. He emails one of the people who clicked the fish and told them, hey, look, uh, this was a phishing email. You clicked it. You shouldn't have. Change your password immediately. Then Chris, or Paul now, calls up the employee. And here's the actual phishing call that took place. This is Paul over tech support. How you doing? Good. Um, we got that you uh, filled out for that iPhone. The iPhone yeah. app. You went yep. in and you, you did your password change? Yes, I did. Okay, excellent. Just wanted to tell you that was really good. That's the way it should have been handled. Okay, yeah. Uh, as soon as we realized that two of us jumped right on it. Okay, so there was another guy in your team that also? Yeah, I think it was JR. JR, okay. I'm just going to write down. I'll be talking to him later on. So uh, just to follow up what we're doing, is, are you on the VPN right now? You're on your work machine? Yes. Okay, I'm going to give you an internal um, address. It's an FTP site that we set up uh, for the employees, you can go there, you can see there's one file there that you'll be able to download and it will just clean up any residual mess from that website uh, that we did that we used for the audit. Okay. So if you're at your machine, just open okay. up a browser and I'll give you the address. Oh, uh, you mean like go on like I'm going to send an email? I'm not real. Uh, uh, well, uh, Internet Explorer, you can open up that. Okay, yep, I got the, okay. And then up on the, the top line, the address, yep. type in FTP. FTP? Yep, F as in Frank, T as okay. in Tom, and then P as in Paul, and then a colon, and then two slashes, and these are the slashes that are by your question mark, the same button as your question mark. Gotcha, FTP, okay. And then the word is update, dash, and the dash is like the minus sign. Gotcha. Dot com. Okay. And, and when you go there, it should open up, it should say index of, and it should have one file. It's a file called PC Checker. Okay, you know it's here. Okay, double ch click on that. Yeah, click on that. Okay. And it should it should download. Okay. So or it should ask you if you want to run or save. Yet click run. Okay. And if everything goes good, you should get no alerts. You know, if if you have a residual problem from that site, then you'll get a message. But if nothing happens and everything's clean and good and and we're done. Okay, I just got a second thing. I said the pub publisher could not be verified. Are you sure you want to run this software? Yeah, click OK. Run again? Okay. Okay, now it took me back to the original screen. Okay, oh, yeah. that's good. So if you got no error message, then, then you're good to go. So you're you're clean. Okay, well, thanks for the help. Not a problem. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, yeah sorry about clicking on that. Ah, it's okay. Thanks for, thanks for uh, thinking about it afterward, though. Okay, man. All right, thanks. Bye. And just like that, Chris has gained remote access to this guy's computer. He can now do anything he wants on it. Open a webcam, turn on the microphone, record keystrokes, transfer files, screenshot the desktop, or move to another computer deeper inside. And this is fascinating. So let me break it down for you. The company had state-of-the-art network equipment, a firewall to block all the bad connections coming into the building or going out of the building, an intrusion detection system to inspect traffic coming and going and blocking anything that looks malicious. And the employees all have antivirus on their PCs too to stop any bad software from running. But of course, none of their security listens for phishing phone calls. It bypasses all that. So that's one problem. Then Chris got the employee to download this executable software. They downloaded it and ran it. There was a warning, are you sure you want to run this kind of thing? But the computer didn't block it from running. And once the program had been run, it started a reverse connection back to Chris's computer. To all the security devices in the network, this simply looked like a regular web request. Chris's server, and from there, Chris was able to ride that connection back into the employee's PC and get in. And this is easily set up too, with a tool called Metasploit. This is just a reverse shell put on the victim's PC. 
And antivirus doesn't stop it either. No, because it wasn't it wasn't seen as a virus. It's taking advantage of the built-in remote control capabilities within Windows itself. And so even a fully updated computer has the ability to run remote access commands on it. And that's all this did. And when you get someone inside the company to run this program, it's all it takes to bypass everything that's supposed to stop it. Scary stuff. I think a lot of times when we talk about this topic, people go, I would never fall for that. And when you hear this guy, he sounds like a normal everyday guy, a guy you probably work with. He sounds like just a, an average dude. He's not dumb. He's 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 not uh, you know he's not like just throwing security to the wind. He sounds like your average everyday guy, and he's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I clicked on that fish. Thanks for helping me. And it's you know it, we're not. I don't like that phrase. There's no patch for human stupidity. We don't use that because that means that everyone that falls for these things is stupid, and I don't think that's true. This guy wasn't stupid. So I think when people hear the call, they get to put themselves in it and go, yeah, I get that. That could have been me. Um, there probably are some current steps that companies can take to stop these things. Um, you know, uh, now we, um, you know, this was a couple of years ago. Now we'd probably have to do a little more fancier footwork with uh, Meterpreter. I do think a lot of antiviruses uh, do detect uh, reverse shells now and um, um, maybe a packet inspection system, you know, uh, could have stopped this. But, you know, we, we embedded this just in a normal EXE over an encrypted tunnel um, and had no malware in it and no Trojans and no viruses. We wanted to get on the machine and then exploit it once we were on. So it literally was, for any lax intensive purpose, it was like opening up an SSH server on the box. That's it. It was just opening up a reverse connection. Now, a lot of my listeners ask me all the time, how can you practice social engineering? So I asked Chris. This is a question I get all the time in my classes, you know, because you really can't just go out and break into places or fish people for fun. Um, so I, I, I say, look, when you look at SE as a science, it is literally just learning how to communicate with people on a level that they like to be communicated with, learning how to get that person to open up to you. So you can do that without having to be a, a pen tester. You can, I mean, maybe not now because of COVID-19, but you could, you, you could do this with delivery people. You can do this when you go to Starbucks the next time. You can have a, you can have a conversation with a complete stranger and get information from that stranger that's non-malicious. What is their full name? Where do they live? What job do they have? How many kids do they have? Are they married? You know, uh, what what did they do in their career? Where did they go to school? Uh, all these questions, which are vital to understand about a person that you're, that if you're a pen tester, you can get in a normal conversation. And the more comfortable you are just having a conversation with a random human, the easier being a social engineer will be when it's time to, to do it for a living. And if you want to know more about social engineering, check out Chris's book, Social Engineering, The Science of Human Hacking. And make sure you get the updated second edition. This is a great book, which breaks down all the concepts of how to be a great social engineer. Uh, that's probably my favorite book that I've written. I've written four. Um, and that one is, I feel like it's 11 years of my experience and science behind it. So unlike the first edition of that, which was very new and it was not very well written, this one I feel was like really done well. Um, but if you're like Cialdini's book called Influence, that's an amazing book. Um, Joe Navarro's book on what everybody is saying is is just a, a phenomenal book. Ekman's book on emotions revealed all about nonverbals is is truly a, a great book. Uh, Amy Cuddy's book on on called Presence, um, on getting yourself into character. Uh, there, I could just kind of list books after books about books that I've read that are, are integral in my life that may be not about social engineering, but they're about an aspect of communications and social engineering. Robin Dreek's book on um, um, the top 10 ways to build rapport with anyone fast. These books are like integral to understand them if you are going to uh, be a social engineer. Of course, I'll have links to all these books in the show notes. So make sure to visit darknetdiaries.com for that. And besides being the chief human hacker for his company and writing books on this, Chris has accomplished so much more. He's the one who started the social engineering village at DEF CON, which is the most popular village at DEF CON. It has some great talks, but also a competition where contestants have to social engineer someone live on stage over the phone in front of a crowd. It's awesome to watch and to learn new tricks. I might have to do an episode just on that village one day. And on top of all that, he started a nonprofit called the Innocent Lives Foundation, where people use OSINT, 
and hacking skills to try to help authorities find and capture child predators and human traffickers. And I think I'm going to have to have Chris back at some point to tell his stories about that for sure. But we'll save that for another time. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing this. Um, I'm going to leave it with this last question. Have you ever been fished? Ha! Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, that's a, I love that question because I think sometimes people that are in the industry don't want to talk about the times they were hacked. And yeah, I got fished hardcore. I, I like... So I, I probably been fished a couple times, but the most notable to me, because I fell for this hook, line, and sinker, is I, like I am an Amazon junkie. You know, I'm, I I I love Amazon. I buy everything on Amazon that I can, and I I was preparing for DefCon, and I had must have ordered like 10, 20 things for the kids competition out at Vegas, and I'm packing up my office for for DefCon, and I get an email that looks just like an Amazon order email, and it says one of your recent orders was will not be shipped due to the client credit card. And everything I always tell my customers is don't ever click those links in the email. You open up your browser, you go to Amazon.com, you log into your account, and it will tell you exactly you know, what the problem is. But not critically thinking, being stressed about DEF CON, packing my office, seeing that email going, oh my gosh, how can it be declined? My credit card never gets declined. I click the link. And then I, I, uh, the browser opens. I go to a page that says it looks like Amazon login page. It looks j identical to it. But I'm one of those guys that has my username saved but not my password. So I start typing my password, and when I go to click the submit button, before I click it, I realize my username's not there. And I'm like, what the heck? My username's always there. So I look up at the URL bar, and it was like something something.ru. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just I just clicked a fish and literally fell for it from a Russian site. So of course, you know, clean the computer, you know, change my passwords, burn the house down, you know, sell the family, move to another country, you know, do all the normal <laughs> things you do when you click on a fish. Um, and then I tell I tell my my team, I'm like, I just got fish. I'm never telling anyone. That's so embarrassing. And then one of the people on my team, she's like, you need to tell the whole world this story. Like this, this can help so many people because you're the guy who wrote the book on fishing. Like you need to tell the story how you got fished. And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good point. So I do tell the story now. But I mean, I fell for that. Like I fell for that 100% because that, that, that email, I, if I did not um, look at that URL bar, I would have clicked submit and given them my credentials. So I like I, I did not. There wasn't a. The only thing that caught me was the one flaw that my username was not in that box. Otherwise, I fell for that thing a hundred percent. Later on, when I went back and inspected the email, it was like for a, a George Foreman grill and some Lee press on nails. You know, it was it was like not even real items that I would ever order. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if I had just read the dang email, I could have caught it. Like if I had looked at the URL bar, I could have, if I opened my browser and typed the address and there's like five ways I could have caught that fish that I, and I ignored them all because of stress and critic, lack of critical thinking. So I'm like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I've been fished, man. I've fallen for it. A big thank you to Christopher Hadnagy, the human hacker, for being here. You can learn more about him by visiting social-engineer.org or check out his podcast, which is just called the Social Engineer Podcast. As always, for every episode, there'll be links of all this stuff out on darknetdiaries.com, so head over there. And while there, check out the bonus Darknet Diaries episodes. These are exclusive to Patreon members. If this show brings value to you, if you've binged through all 69 episodes now and can't wait for the next one, keep in mind, you got all that entertainment for free. And it's because of the help of Patreon members that this show keeps running. So please consider joining Patreon to help support the show and unlock some bonus episodes. This show is made by me, the Ghost in the Shell Code, Jack Resider. Sound design and original music was created by the sometimes bored Andrew Merriweather. Editing help this episode was by the devilish Damien. And our theme music is by the Morocco-wielding Breakmaster Cylinder. And even though when management sends me an email, sometimes I write back with just unsubscribe. This is Darknet Diaries. Darknet Diaries.